to Art Witch, the podcast where creativity, magic, and healing align for personal and collective liberation. I'm your host, Zanetta, and welcome. Art Witch aims to provide resources for creative empowerment, helping folks make and share their art and also find their authentic expression. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of artists, witches, and healers, as well as experts in various art industries and related fields, all with the intention of helping folks share their art and their unique magic with the world. So welcome, welcome. I'm here with Eliza Swan today. And Eliza is an amazing witch and clairvoyant and artist and kind of a force of nature with the Golden Dome School. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Welcome, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to be in your space. So usually I like to just hear a little bit about your creative journey and and just hearing where people have gone with their art and and kind of how they find themselves in this moment and just a little bit about your background in in making art. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I started out life wanting to be a poet and also um, I started out this life being able to communicate with spirits and the dead and nature spirits and when i was young i wrote poetry um, and my aunt who was the witch encouraged me in talking to land spirits and the dead and i felt very free until i went to school and tried to share my poems with teachers and was just consistently discouraged from describing how i came up with the poems, which was actually just listening to spirits. Um, so I stopped writing and became a painter because I thought, oh, well, painters never have to explain themselves, right? So no one will know where I'm getting these <laughs> ideas from. And I went to art school to become a painter in San Francisco. Um, and there I was discouraged from talking about mediumship, mysticism, emotions, intuition. Um, really anything that was of interest to me was not considered part of the art academic canon. And I went to graduate school, which is even worse, um, where not only was I discouraged from talking about mysticism and emotion, but I was also discouraged from being multidisciplinary because we were very much impressed upon to create a brand and to have kind of a singular type of vision and I had a vision over the years of trying to find mediums that fit what I was hearing and seeing. Um, my art practice spans all these different disciplines, performance, video, text, sound, uh, painting, writing. And so at grad school, I wasn't well understood or well received. And I had a real breakdown after graduate school. And I actually... Um, extended my credit card limit, (laughs) flew to Greece, and went to the site of the oracles at Delphi. 
and I begged the ground there to tell me what to do because I felt um, not only excluded from the fine art world or the academic world, but also from a lot of the spiritual world. I was part of different mystery schools and they were very hierarchical and punitive and not very loving or experimental or experiential. Um, and so I felt like I was groundless and I spoke to the ground in Greece and it said, all disciplines are one discipline. Your psychic practice is the same as your art practice. Go back to New York, which is where I'm from, and just get started. And so I went back to New York and was very transient for a while, very just kind of heartbroken. I thought that I was going to be a poet. I thought I was going to be a painter. I thought I was going to be a mystic, and I couldn't ever quite fit into any of those things. And so um, I got a strong message to start a school that was for people who have these very transdisciplinary, non-hierarchical modes of working and being. And I returned in my teachings at the Golden Dome to a lot of pre-enlightenment scholars and writers in the mystic tradition who didn't delineate between philosophy, spirituality, science, fine art and poetry. It was all the same discipline. Um, and so that's where I am now, just <laughs> kind of doing everything at the sounds same time. Beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I really hear you about that process of kind of going into formal education and mm. how it can really leave and leave you almost more bereft and dissociative yeah. from the connection to creativity and sure as shit spirituality mm -hmm. <laughs> or yeah. any sense of, of magic. I'm kind of curious, like how, how did you find yourself navigating that or trying, you know, obviously you didn't stop <laughs> on some <laughs> level. I'd like to hear a little bit about what, what uh, processes or, or practices or maybe even just, you know, trips that you took to kind of like navigate that world a little bit? Um, do you mean kind of navigating staying true even when I was getting discouraged left and right? Yeah. 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 I think that I can only describe the feeling state <laughs> and words aren't going to quite get it. But I think that what I was able to lean into throughout, you know, this lifetime of experiences of being discouraged or rejected from these institutions that I desperately wanted to have support me was a sensation that's kind of akin to magnetism or feeling very pulled or very called in a certain direction in a way that felt um, inevitable. And it's a lot more painful to not listen to it than it is to just walk towards it. Um, so it was kind of moving away from the pain of abandoning myself <laughs> and towards the pain of possibly being rejected. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That kind of um, 
you know, is it, is it them or is it you? <laughs> you know, at the end, at the end, at the end of this journey, will it be you or, or will it be them standing there and it will be you? Right. Yeah. I very much feel that. And over the course of my own creativity, um, it's, that's been a real litmus mm -hmm. test for me to get very honest and very clear about kind of the next steps with things, even if those steps seemed really far-fetched, um, or just nonsensical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but I'm coming to really enjoy the nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of brings me to my next question, actually, is would you maybe share a little bit about those moments of unfolding where something was maybe less apparent and what it maybe yielded and just this, like maybe the feelings that you had or, or just something, a moment of following that magnetism? Yeah, there are so many examples I can think of. Um, one story that I tell a lot is that when I got back to New York from grad school, I had this weird job where I was searching, excuse me, searching, serving coffee at corporate convention centers. So I would get flown around the United States to serve coffee to military executives. It was really strange. Wow. And I just assumed that I was being positioned in these places to observe the corporate decrepitude that underpins a lot of the structures in our country. Anyway, I was flown to Colorado Springs and put up in a five diamond resort. And during the day I was serving coffee to business, business execs. And in the evenings, I was wandering out to the golf courses and taking mushrooms. <laughs> So one of these evenings, I wandered out to the golf course, and I sat with my favorite tree, and I just listened and waited, and a raven spirit descended in front of me and said, found a school, it's going to be called the Golden Dome, it's going to be based on mysticism and creative practice and how these things are enmeshed with each other. And don't worry about it. You're going to found the school in Los Angeles, but actually you'll run it beginning in Northern California. It's kind of weird instructions because I wasn't living in Los Angeles at the time. And this Raven spirit gave me a map to follow. And so I did. Um, a friend and I drove from New Mexico to Los Angeles. And I told friends about this kooky idea. And a friend was like, hey, this land called Raven's Crossing is actually available in Northern California if you want to use it for a session. Um, so the Golden Dome started out as week-long artist residencies, and now it's kind of a bigger project. And so we did the first residency at Raven's Crossing. And then a gallery called Crow's Work was like, hey, we want to exhibit your, the work that you make at Raven's Crossing. So it was another Corvid. <laughs> it was a raven and a crow. Um, and it just came together like that, like kind of following this mysterious map of symbols. Um, that first artist residency had a lot of catastrophic things happen with it. It was not smooth. It was not easy. It was not even, um, a lot of the collaborators that I worked with on that one were no longer on speaking terms. And it was very stormy beginning. 
So I don't want to give the impression that I just followed this mysterious knot and everything was perfect. It was not at all. But um, that's a classic case of just following the clues. And people ask all the time, what does the Golden Dome mean? And I don't know. (laughs) It was just given to me. And when I kind of came to and started drawing out these plans and talking to friends about them, I was a little embarrassed by that name because there's the Golden Drum and the York. There's um, a lot of other names for centers that sound exactly the same. And I was like, almost like a dream. Like, was I just scrambling up reality and kind of looking Mm. at it through (laughs) some kaleidoscopic lens? Have I totally lost it? Um, But I followed it. And now the school is very much up and running and has a lot of collaborators and, and a life of its own that I was happy to usher in. Yeah, that's such a great story about following. I guess, I don't, you know, nonsensical is not the word for that, actually. It's really, it's following something that's supporting you and, mm. and, and, and taking the initiative to access that. That's really cool. Yeah, I found that those moments when I was transient, my life was in a suitcase, I was between real, quote unquote, real jobs or or relationships or, you know, any of those things that we're told make us steady, solid human beings. Those times when I've been in between all of that have actually been the times when I was best able to follow those weird pathways. Um, I'm coming to a different phase now where I hope to be a little bit less <laughs> less of a wanderer, but I don't know. It doesn't feel up to me at this point. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit actually about, you know, in this idea of <clears throat> how it doesn't kind of feel up to you, could you speak a little bit into you know where how you conceptualize like that kind of creative source connection how you conceptualize and kind of organize it for yourself and and kind of wrap your own maybe head around that yeah um i was taught by a teacher that i worked with for almost a decade that art is never human made (laughs) that it doesn't come from our minds we receive ideas for art from other worlds and then we can physicalize it somehow here. And I worked with her from my late teens until my late 20s, right around. So right when I was kind of cultivating an art practice, I had this bug in my ear that really resonated with how I experienced art in childhood. It was just this feeling of surrendering and letting lightning pass through the body. So I personally, don't feel that I come up with art ideas, but that I make myself available to ones that resonate with me and my talents. And then the ones that stick are the ones that stick. I also, most of my family lineage is Italian. And in pre-Christian Rome, there was this idea that every person has a genius Every person, place, thing, idea, object, everything has a genius. And a genius is an attending spirit that's born when you're born or when a building is born or an idea is born or a project is born. And it attends to you until your death. 
And its sole job is to give you ideas and to let you know what your particular talents are. And that word has been perverted now to just mean mm -hmm. that one or two men in powdered wigs are geniuses. But in fact, it's not only humans that have genius, but anything that is conceived at all is conceived with a genius. So I also have a relationship to that concept that I'm constantly being fed ideas and energy and information by attending spirits, by the lightning of the world, by the cosmic soup. And I assume that the lightning of an idea that's meant for me passes through me every now and again. Hmm. Hmm. As you were kind of describing that connection and, and just the way that that's organized for you, I had this vision of all the different mediums that you work with. And I'm also kind of a, a multi-medium kind of person. I love, I, there's no, there's no end to what I find connection to. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> And I'd love to hear a little bit about um, just, you know, with that concept of genius in mind and as you touch and feel, sense and walk with the items that you're working with and the, the mediums that you're working with, you know, how do, how do you think that that kind of uh, informs your process and your relationship with those mediums? That's such an interesting and cool question. I was talking to my friend Grace about that last night actually, because uh, they expressed feeling really outcasted within the arts because they they don't have a portfolio to speak of. Um, a lot of their work lives in the realm of ideas. It doesn't even get the body of a, of a medium or a vehicle like a canvas. Um, and I, I had a lot of resonance with her concern. But... Um, these days, it's a combination of access and personal availability, how much space I have, what kind of spaces or objects or things I have access to, and timing. And so I have whole constellations of ideas spinning all the time, but generally speaking, not the means to actualize most of them. So there's constant constellations of ideas that could be sound-driven or performance-driven or um, driven in the format of a lecture or a book. And just depending on where I'm situated, what I have access to, and where what I'm resonating with or what seems like is necessary, I, I go for. I don't know if that was an answer to your question exactly, but... I think it is touching upon mm. upon that question. I mean, access is so, so real and also a really powerful creative force, yeah. you know, considering our limitations, like considering folks who improvise, like, especially in like free jazz or yeah. different art forms like that, where, you know, they're playing like one of the mediums is constraint. Mm hmm and how we work with constraint and um, relationship, like relationship to what we have access to being kind of a, a creative jump starter, mm -hmm. so to speak, rather than um, 
you know, kind of maybe a more formulaic experience or something like how we interact with those boundaries. And so it's kind of awesome to hear someone say, you know, I have, (laughs) here's what I have access to and this (laughs) is what feels necessary in this project. Great. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to go there. Yeah. Um, I had the honor of just like getting a chance to watch your Baba Yaga um, (laughs) piece. And it was, For everyone who's listening to this, just go and like in the month of October, please (laughs) do yourself a favor and watch that, uh, that piece on Eliza's website, because it's really, it's got some, some really potent energy that felt so activating. Mm. And there was a lot, a lot of mediums you used and wove together Mm -hmm. in that process, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship of confidence with different, with those different mediums that are like sound and then like video. And, you know, so many people who will be listening probably have such a hankering to incorporate something else, to try Mm -hmm. something else. And I can't help but wonder, like, how how did you kind of navigate that? And and where were you landing with those different, (laughs) those different um Baba Yaga is a video that I made my last year of graduate school it's three minutes long I think but it took me almost a year and it is a video that spliced together um, footage of myself performing I did some movement at Derek Jarman's uh, garden in oh my gosh my brain is too spacious to think about it um Derek Jarman's one of my favorite filmmakers and he had this famous garden in England. And so I filmed myself doing some movement in his garden and I knew I wanted to talk about magic and mysticism and uh, connections between magic and mysticism. But I was in grad school, so I was being discouraged from doing that very thing. I was trying to make a straightforward video with a narrative arc and it just didn't work. It didn't make sense. It wasn't right. I didn't have the means to make um, a linear narrative video that was good to look at. And I tried doing voiceovers on this video and it was kind of a mess. Initially, I wanted to do an ode to Derek Jarman, an ode to witchcraft, it was a little unclear how I was going to do it. I didn't have very much money, but I did have access to my graduate school's cameras. Um, so I just tried different things, and it took a really long time to hit on a combination of footage that I was able to make. And then I had to use some found footage as well because I had ideas that I couldn't replicate myself very successfully so i took found footage from um, a russian film called about baba yaga made in the 1970s and the voiceover was bad the narrative was bad and so i just sat with myself and i thought what is this piece i've been working on it for almost a year i just have you know hours of footage most of it's not very good i found this old movie that i kind of like what what is this what's going on And I sat with um, a mess, and then I realized that it was about initiation, and I felt that I was going through an initiation. 
as a person and as an artist. And this was one of the first pieces that I made that was specifically about my own faiths and, and practices. So I went through all of these recordings of women describing their initiations into nature-based religions, cut them up, took my own voiceover out of the video, um, took most of the footage out of the video and just made it really spare. And essentially, you know, short answer is um, that video was made through combined performance, found footage, and found sound, because that's what I had access to and what worked and what said what I wanted to say. And I ended up installing it in this shack in the graduate show that was painted neon green on the inside. And you would go in and you would hear these women repeating these phrases over and over about falling down or falling in or um, being taken over by spirits. And I wanted to build a chamber for initiation in the hopes that my tutors, as they call them in England, I went to grad school in England, in the hopes that my tutors would stand in there and just loosen up. <laughs> <laughs> because they were so uptight and so rigid with me about what was possible in art, or what art could be about. So anyway, long story. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. It's not every day you get to hear like just the the really beautiful like nitty gritty, mm. you know, like work that mm -hmm. goes into to bringing something so cool about. <laughs> and I, I feel like that that comment about like your tutors <laughs> and loosening <laughs> up. You know, you do a lot of lecture work, right? Like you've really mm -hmm. you've been on flip sides of this academic. Um, <laughs> this glass panel you know like <laughs> you're not just the student but you've also been the lecturer and the teacher yeah. I you know I kind of I kind of wonder how you navigate that you know as as like on that side as being like a teacher and a lecturer and stuff like that within the realm of it's definitely like the realm of an institution and the realm of like academic imperialism um with regards to our art how how do you navigate that what do you where are you landing with that at this time you know i was raised in new york city and one of the only clubs i could get into was on saint mark's place it was a punk club and i was raised with punk culture and punks and radical queers and um as a result and i'm very thankful for this a lot of the ways <laughs> that I arrive at what I think is right for me is a reaction to what has been wrong for me. So I had a mystical teacher who constantly berated me and um, enforced a very strict hierarchy and didn't trust me to have my own process. And likewise, I had a lot of teachers who were more concerned about reinforcing their separateness and specialness than they were about seeing where I was as an artist. And so I decided, I very much felt called to teach. It seemed like um, the right pathway for me at this time anyway. Um, and so I used what I felt did not work as a means to figure out what does work. And so 
I insist for myself and the spaces that I create that I trust the people that show up there to be in touch with their own process and the ways that they need to be. Um, I'm very heart-centered. I don't assume that I know more than the people that I'm lecturing or teaching. And I usually have an invitational style so that it's not uh, one directional transmission of energy and information, but so that it moves in waves, so that I'll say something and then the wave of who I'm talking to comes back at me. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I've approached teaching. And I do teach it, you know, art schools now, which um, is such a gift because I've noticed that institutions are really opening themselves up to radical weirdos these days and they give me freedom in the sense to nurture and trust and care for and uh, delight in the young artists that show up to those spaces oh that's so beautiful it's i mean it's really hope it's hope uh it's a gift of hope to hear that um to hear that there's a a tide turning i think there is yeah i like any tide it might recede again who knows but um right now it feels like there is an opening to much more interdisciplinary thinking, much more non-hierarchical thinking, um, much more loving attitudes between facilitators and students. I think that institutions are noticing trends too among their students Mm. on some level, like that people are searching for um, a pretty integrated approach to what they're working on and what they're trying to share Um, and kind of following that pulse listening to those trends you know i I read that article a while back by amanda yates garcia talking or for me it was like maybe it was a, a scholarly publication or something but she was talking about you know witches who make art you know and yeah. like being the high art world quote unquote you know and how there's just a lot more mysticism that's entering on a very it's like a lot more mysticism that's being involved in like kind of the the at least the visual art world you know so to speak yeah Um, what do you think about that you know that trend and that kind of like emergence of of kind of welcoming welcoming the witches (laughs) i'm unsurprised because as soon as we turned into an Instagram kind of world, which is image-based, we turned into a magical sort of world, which is symbol and image-based. And magicians, witches, mystics, and I'm not just talking about visual art, right? Letters are glyphs are symbols of something else, but So writers, I include in this, but um, as soon as we turn towards being symbol-based as a culture, we turn towards art and magic much, much more. 
Um, and that makes sense because it's the witches and magicians and mystics who understand how to program symbols, what they convey, um, how it is that they shape and wield the world, um, how the word, how the symbol, how the image, how the movement, how the color, how the texture can shape and wield the collective psyche um, has been the domain of philosophers and mystics forever. So I was unsurprised to see that there was a massive resurgence of accepting those types of philosophies and practices. Um, and also, it couldn't be more evident now that capitalistic, colonial, industrialized, age of enlightenment, medicine, art, philosophy, and thinking has failed all of us. Even the billionaires are failed by the systems that we have that are devoid of empathy and acknowledgement of spirit and devoid of animistic worldviews. Um, our planet is burning up and filled with trash because of that. So it's also a reaction to our mechanical philosophical worldview where um, something like a tree is seen as a resource rather than a sentient being. This is where we get. And so I think there's a lot of backlash against you know the mechanical philosophy that has been forced upon most of the world at this point. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like um, you know it's not even it's not a trend, but it's just like the way things are, and it's just becoming clearer that this is the way things are <laughs> and this and and then there's an acceptance of the way things are that's like kind of maybe on mass starting to shift a little bit more and, and seeing like the connectivity and the animism and the and the things that surround us which are not just things but are you know sentient beings that that is as a truth that has always existed regardless of like dominant overculture and you know consensus beliefs yeah. um and so now it's just kind of some acceptance might be happening <laughs> there's just, a, just a little bit yeah there's an amazing video you can watch on youtube made by the philosopher and biologist rupert sheldrake called is the sun conscious where he talks about by biological or biology's description of what consciousness is and how it absolutely fits with the sun's behavior and why that's significant, not just for the scientific community, but for how we live. And we love it. I, you know, even empirical scientists are coming around to this notion that if we completely cut ourselves off from empathy and from being able to hear the soul and the song of the world and the cosmos we just end up dying in a pile of rubbish without a proper burial you are in the midst of writing a book could you share maybe a little bit about that project and and the inspiration behind it 
Yeah. Um, I published my first not self-published book this year called The Anatomy of the Aura out on St. Martin's Press. And St. Martin's was so wonderful and really supported all of these complicated ideas that I had about energy exchange and ethics. And I was so heartened by being able to publish kind of weird information that I started to cultivate a book. It's a hybrid book. It's called The Dead Aren't Dead and Art Isn't Either. And it's about the relationship between art and mediumship. Um, It describes how certain art objects have souls inside of them. It describes the relationship that we have as modern people to the dead and how that has disrupted how we're able to make art. It's about the sacredness of art and it's kind of a mashup between um, mediumship development exercises art exercises, personal biography, and it's also an explanation of something that I do called psychic tours, where I lead groups of people through museums to start to open up intuitively and psychically to art objects. So I give tours in museums like the Met. I did a tour of Helma of Klein's paintings where we opened up and learned how to channel the spirits that are inside of certain art objects. And that's that book, The Dead Aren't Dead and Art Isn't Either. And I hope to be able to get the manuscript together by the end of the year, but we'll see. That's incredible. I can't wait for that book. I'll be the first person on the pre-order list. (laughs) And also the first person in whenever psychic tours start up again, I'll be there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I love giving those. So Eliza, if you would just share like what is coming up or how people can contact you or work with you, you give readings, you do um, different workshops and classes and you're a resident artist, right? At the Botanical Garden or. Yeah, that ended actually. I was a resident there in the summer, which is so beautiful. Um, if you are interested in the Golden Dome School, you can visit golden-dome.org and there is information up there about exhibitions and performances and artist residencies, which are on hold due to the pandemic. Um, but we have lots of online classes. And if you want to join the Alchemical Imagination Cohort in 2021, you should jump on our mailing list, which you can do on the website. And if you want to, reading together or anything like that if you just google arise swan <clears throat> excuse me the um information for how to schedule a reading pops up as the first thing and you can also email me at eliza swan with two n's at gmail.com and i'll do my best to respond <laughs> do you mind sharing a little bit about um about the alchemical imagination right yes um, so that is a course that I developed actually for Pratt. Um, it's an interdisciplinary course in their transdisciplinary studies department. And I developed it for Pratt and pitched it. And they had a little bit of reservation about it because there's a lot of lack of understanding or clarity around who alchemists were and what it would mean to teach their ideas um in the interdisciplinary department but that course is going to run next year 
And I developed the alchemical imagination not as a course that's about the history of alchemy or even learning how to practice alchemy in terms of um, laboratory procedures or um, the conception of medicines or philosophies or you know other kind of outputs that alchemists contributed to throughout their history. I conceived of the alchemical imagination as a course where we could look at a lot of the symbols, poems, images, and philosophies that alchemists use to try to understand the world as a springboard for making art. Mm. And I shortened the course so it's not 16 weeks, it's eight weeks. Um, I've added 16 weeks. I shortened it to eight weeks and it's now running through the Golden Dome. It started already last weekend um, and runs through the end of November, but it'll happen again next year. Um, it'll run for eight weeks from February to April, I think. But it's about the alchemical worldview, which I think is so important. And it's a worldview that has a couple of basic assumptions, no matter which alchemical philosophers you're working with. So alchemy was practiced according to modern definitions of what alchemy is. It was practiced in China, India, Egypt, what was then known as Persia, and Greece, and then eventually in Europe. And all of these traditions have different spins on alchemical processes based on the spiritual practices of the place. So um, Taoist philosophy is enmeshed with Chinese alchemy, um, Dharmic philosophy is enmeshed with Indian alchemy, etc. But there are a few things that they all have in common. The one assumption being that anything that you do externally as an alchemist, so if you're doing chrysopoeia, right, that famous experiment that alchemists do to try to turn lead into gold, you're not just doing that in your lab, you're also doing that internally. So everything you make is also being reflected and rearranged within yourself. And that's such an important philosophical standpoint for artists to have, I think. Um, and there's also a method of working wherein every material that you use, every idea that's given to you is infused by transformational spirit. And so, for example, if you're a painter making a painting through the alchemical lens, when you make the stretcher, you're working with the element of wood, the spirit of wood. You're, you're enmeshing yourself and you're being in your spirit with building the stretcher. Then you stretch the canvas over and you see the weaving in the canvas as the marriage of the sun and the moon. And then you lay your paint on top and the chemical components of the paint have a spirit that is designed and purposefully put together to create transmutation within the materials but also within the soul of the artist and the soul of the world and it's a powerful way to approach creativity because on the one hand it frees you from thinking that you have to come up with art yourself or that you're alone in making you're actually um, just wielding these infinite eternal powerful forces for a particular purpose but it also creates an added layer of responsibility, which I think is mm -hmm. important for artists to consider. You know, what is it that I'm 
making, what is the ripple of change that I'm making internally and externally and in terms of my connection with the soul of the world here? What's the point? Oh, yes. Yes, a thousand times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is the ripple of change? Yeah. I think that that's a question that has never been asked <laughs> in in formal education <laughs> on some level. It feels really mm. hard to get to that place, at least coming from a classical background, like a classical mm. music background and going through classical like training and conservatory for me. That was never a question of like, what is the ripple of change? It's like, what is the thing that you're going to execute <laughs> perfectly? Each and every time you do it, which is wonderful in its own way. And in the sense that you're, you're really focusing and being able to focus your intentions and, and really hone that skill. But it's interesting to what end. And it's sad to hear that because, you know, that's a a post-enlightenment butchery. Classical music was for many composers and musicians considered to be the breath of God moving through an instrument. And then when you remove that, you're just stuck with notes on a page. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, a lot of questions that people ask um, that I've noticed are about ethics, about ethical create, like a ethical creations, ethical creativity, you know, kind of getting into right relationship. This is a question that comes up mm. a lot in, in witchcraft and in space, spiritual spaces and mm. where healing work being done. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, you know, in regards to like art and magic and that, that kind of happy partnership that comes together with those, those streams? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And I love the phrase right relationship. I think it's important. I think that um, it was interesting when I said out loud, you know, what ripple in the world is this work creating? I immediately regretted saying that because <laughs> it's, it's not that I feel that we have to intellectually know what our work is about or what change it makes. That's didactic and when you open up to spirit you create work that's often non-linear symbol laden and strange and difficult to convey in a logical manner Um, and so I think a lot of magical practice and a lot of um, fine art practice operates in this area that goes beyond what the logical mind tries to do in terms of right and wrong. So it's a complicated question to answer, but I think that as a practitioner, I put a lot of steps or procedures into the type of work that I do. So for example, I work as a a psychic, a clairvoyant, people book sessions with me. And so I have several processes that we go through before we start a reading that ensure that I am 
setting an intention that works for both of us, that I am able to hold a space that is loving and nurturing and trusting of a person's process. I think giving readings can get really dangerous when we don't establish what our agreements and permission levels are between ourselves and the people that we work with. Same with um, being a teacher. Mm. I think that the realm of art is interesting in terms of right relationship because now we have this conundrum of having very easy access to a lot of materials. And so we have to consider the weight of that. Um, but yeah, it's a nuanced, complex question. And I feel increasingly committed to examining it and increasingly at a loss of words when thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had this question come up a lot um, in some of my like sound workshops where I'm mm -hmm. teaching field recording or talking about how I work with sound and I think folks are looking for a pretty clear answer for me. Like, what are the steps <laughs> yeah. that you, you go through to be able to parse that out with yourself? And I'm like, it's all about relationship. Like, and also that that relationship is shifting and is fluid all the time and evolving. And so like my relationship to a specific region that I'm recording in or a specific, you know, place that I have ancestral connection to or something. Mm -hmm. These things are not set in stone. They're not mm -hmm. hard and fast. And it takes a lot of kind of connecting, at least for myself, I've noticed over the years, connecting to what what feels like that truth at that moment. And, mm -hmm. and then kind of coming back over and over and over again as I change as the work changes, as the work asks something else of me, and I'm maybe not ready to go there. <laughs> yeah, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have one last question. Um, it's kind of the question that I thought would be really cool to ask folks just in general when they come on the show, which is what advice or words or anything you'd like to share with your younger self, your emergent mm. artistic self <laughs> uh, as a way to just send off this episode. I was thinking that in regard to what you were saying about right relationship and your field recording practice is that um, deep listening is essential to establishing right relationship. And by deep listening, I don't mean with the ears. Um, I mean, just a deep receptivity and responsiveness to where you are, who you're with, what you're working with. I thought it was so profound when I learned um, in studying in India that the throat chakra was connected to the sense of listening or hearing and that our ability to speak clearly and truthfully and in right relationship with those that we're speaking to involves listening primarily. And so I love that you work with sound and field recording and listening and ethics and permission, because I think listening and hearing are so imperative to making sure that we're in alignment with what is right. Yeah, I very much feel that. Yeah. And then to answer that 
other question of what I would say to my younger self. I'm hearing my friend Linda Montano's voice, who is an artist who's in her 70s now, based up in Sagarti. She's a performance artist and has been a massive influence on my life and practice. She has a practice called Art Life. She created something called the Transfiguration Hospital that was about how you can use performance to heal and reach spiritual ecstasy. She's really amazing. And I went to her in my early 20s for help. I had difficulty expressing myself. I was very shy. I was very confused. I was lacking in a sense of ground or self-confidence or self-esteem. And her advice to me was very short and very simple, and she's repeated it many times since. And it was, uh, just don't look around. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and don't, just don't look around was what she said. And I understand that to mean um, don't compare your practice or model your practice after anyone else's. Really sit with what is true for you, and it will find a place in the time-space continuum eventually <laughs> so wow that's my advice to my younger self and we've seen it you know it's a sad thing about the fine art world they take people with really radical cosmic spiritual beliefs seriously after they're dead because then they don't have to reckon with a living person who has a cosmology that's disruptive to the institution of art you know, and a huge example of that these days is Hilma of Clint, right? Her show at the Guggenheim was the most attended show of any show at the Guggenheim. And everyone said, oh, my God, isn't it amazing that her spirits told her to show her work in the future after she was dead? Because that's when it would be understood. And I think, yeah, it's great that Hilma of Clint had a keen understanding that her work would survive and make sense and liberate people in the future. But also, how sad <laughs> that her ideas of where art comes from, which for her, you know, art comes from the spiritual plane, um, still can't really be accepted, even with throngs and crowds in the museum. You know, likewise, Forrest Betts is a painter who I love so much. And he was an alchemist. And he died in obscurity and poverty in a little shipping village in Texas, and then was put in the Whitney Biennial. And everyone thought, oh, how amazing. You know, this, this wizard, this alchemist was so true to his vision. But um, in bringing those examples up, because those are two people who made things, even when it wasn't easy even when the world wasn't responsive, even when it didn't look like anything else that was being produced, whereas Bess's paintings don't look like anything else, Hilma Clint's paintings don't look like anything else, don't look around, <laughs> do what you gotta do. It's my advice from my younger self, courtesy Linda Montana. Oh, thank you, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're all we're all just kind of sharing that that transference of wisdom. And I really, really appreciate you saying that. That's something that I've definitely needed to hear over and over. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening will feel some serious resonance with that. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the Instagram energy, yes. which I, I love. I love Instagram in the sense that I love the people that I've met, 
people like you and so many other folks, but there is an, it is all about looking around and seeing everything. (laughs) (laughs) You got to kind of put those, those blinders on. (laughs) Yeah. And return to the ground of what is true for you. And I would say, I would give the same advice to people who are opening up into having spiritual practices. Don't look around. Don't assume that you'll be a spiritual practitioner with 10,000 followers that may not be important to your practice. You can still thrive and have a wonderful, bountiful, fulfilling, mystical life without it working like anyone else's. Hmm. Thank you so much, Eliza, (laughs) for sharing just your advice, your story, your art, just everything that you've worked on and shared with the world. It's really, really powerful. I loved talking to you about all of these things. They're so important and so dear to me. And I just love the work that you do. And I'm so glad you're opening this space for people who are in the creative field to talk about how their relationship to philosophy and mysticism is enmeshed with their work. We really need to hear more. I, I love, I mean, this is a podcast for my younger self. For sure. <laughs> Like, that's why I felt that last question was the one for me, because I was like, you know, there's just some things, there's some gifts, some reparative energy we can, we can bring as we do this together and, and move forward. Oh, I love that so much. It gives me goosebumps. And may all of our younger selves tune in to this podcast from the future and hear encouragement to be freaky and authentic and boundary pushing if you enjoyed today's episode of art witch please consider subscribing or writing a review each and every little bit helps spread the word to more and more